their efforts. A few weeks ago, we started our new series on Daniel. We read the text a moment ago, Daniel 1. So if you have it open there, we will hit a few verses as we make our way through this first opening story of uh, this book. Growing up, one of my favorite movies was the original Karate Kid. Uh, it was a story about a teenager named Daniel, interestingly enough, um, who wanted to learn karate, so he goes to an old man named Mr. Miyagi. If you've not seen it, by the way, I'm going to give away the story here. But he goes to him, and he, he asks him, and Mr. Miyagi doesn't give him traditional drills and skills. He instead gives him a list of chores. You may remember, paint the fence, sand the floor, wax on, wax off. And as he did this for a few weeks' time, Daniel eventually just got frustrated and kind of blew up at Mr. Miyagi, saying, I, I, I wanted to learn karate. Why, why am I doing all this free handyman work? And in a key moment in the movie, he shows him that the, the hand motions that he was learning through these chores were actually the skills that he needed for doing karate. And Daniel has this moment, it's a really kind of inspiring moment in the movie, when it finally dawns on him that Mr. Miyagi, he wasn't giving him what he expected, but he, he was giving him what he needed. Isn't God kind of like that sometimes? You pray, dear God, give me more faith. And the next thing you know, he sends you a trial. That's not what I asked for. But maybe it is what you need. God doesn't always give us what we think he should, but he does give us what he thinks he should. And as the old saying go, Father knows best. And we're going to see how the Father knows what we need and how He gives to us in this opening chapter here in Daniel 1. D despite what you may have been led to believe your whole life, the book of Daniel is not mainly about Daniel. Like the whole Bible, it's ultimately about God. So we're going to learn about Daniel and learn from Daniel, but I, what I want us to do this morning is to look for God. And God shows up in this opening chapter three times. And believe it or not, every time he shows up, he's doing the exact same thing. It says God gives, God gives, and God gives. Now, it may be easy to hear that and think, wow, well, that's, wow, that's wonderful. God giving and giving and giving. I mean, I like this idea that God is a make-a-wish foundation, right? That God is a, a, a divine genie just just handing out stuff like a vending machine. But as we're going to see in Daniel chapter 1, if I can say it this way, God is doing something that's a lot more like Mr. Miyagi. He's not giving what you expect. But he is giving ultimately what his people need. And that's because God is in control and God is up to something that is way bigger than what we're aware of sometimes. And Daniel 1 is a testimony to how God is the sovereign God is working in and through the lives of his faithful people. Daniel chapter 1 is a story that has three scenes. And in each of these scenes, we see God giving and giving and giving. 
And I want us to unpack this together and see how it's true for our own day and time. Now, notice we begin with verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This verse here is history. It's roughly 600 years before Jesus. The southern kingdom of Judah is the only one that remains, and they've been unfaithful to God. God has sent prophets to preach to them, to correct them, to guide them, but they have shut up their hearts. They have not listened to the word of the Lord. And the big geopolitical bully of this time was an up-and-coming group known as the Babylonians. And, and they had a brand new king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this guy Nebuchadnezzar uh, is not just Bible famous. He's famous famous. His exploits and wars are legendary. In fact, you can look it up afterwards. Nebuchadnezzar's Wikipedia page is longer than Elon Musk's. This guy's a big deal, okay, in the ancient world. And really, at expanding Babylon, at gobbling up smaller nations and, and bringing them in and making his empire bigger and greater and grander. And, and it doesn't look like it, but in verse 1, that's exactly what he's doing. He's coming to take Babylon. He besieges Jerusalem. I know verse 1 seems like a real simple thing. He came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But if you look really closely at verse 1, I'm telling you, verse 1 is filled with the sound of chariots rumbling and swords clashing and torches burning and men screaming and blood and guts and gore and 20 years of a siege. Jeremiah said it got so bad inside the walls, people reverted to cannibalism just to stay alive. If you want to see an eyewitness account, read the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah watched the final act in this siege. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and was ruthless in taking Jerusalem and Judah. He not only destroyed it, he also pillaged it. Verse 2, if you notice, it says he took some of the vessels of the house of God, some of the familiar Old Testament utensils they used in their worship. This was sort of like stealing the, the rival high school's mascot, right? The, the ancients loved to go in and take each other's gods, their idols, and put them in their own temple. And this was the way of theologically flexing and saying, our God is stronger than your God. Our God can beat your God. And so when Nebuchadnezzar does this, he's, he's, actually, he's actually trying to slam dunk on Yahweh. He says, see, I'm, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one that's powerful. I am Nebuchadnezzar the Great. In fact, if you don't believe me, notice where he takes it in verse 2. Some translations say to the land of Shinar. If you remember, that makes one other cameo in Genesis 11. That's the place where the Tower of Babel happened. Where man said, we're, we're, we're great. And if you don't think this is connected, look in verse 4 what Nebuchadnezzar does. He tries to teach them all one language. He is trying to single-handedly reverse what God did at Babel. Because he's Nebuchadnezzar. He's undefeated. He not only took their things, he also took their children. Verse 3 says some of the sons of Israel were, were taken by him. He didn't grab up orphans or street kids. If you notice, he, he only kidnapped honor roll students. The best and the brightest. 
And why did he take them? At the end of verse 4, it says, so that he might teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. I told my kids, imagine being grabbed out of your bed in the middle of the night, someone putting a hood over your head, and then next thing you know, you wake up and you're told, forget George Washington, forget apple pie, forget baseball, and all you're given 24-7 is North Korean propaganda. It's Babylonian brainwashing. Their whole goal was to make them think we are no longer Yahweh's people, we are now Nebuchadnezzar's people. And he was trying to retrain them. In addition to this, he also fed them. Verse 5, he appointed a daily ration from the king's choice food and the wine. This will come up later in the story. By the way, this, this, uh, um, to be given a free meal ticket to the king's buffet, this was a big deal. People starved in those days. This is the opportunity to eat the best food on planet Earth. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going out of his way to indoctrinate and to bring them in and to make these guys Babylonian. He gives them Babylonian classes, Babylonian culture, Babylonian calories. His goal is so that, notice the end of verse 5, is so that they would enter the king's personal service. Do you see that? To enter the king's personal service. If you were an Old Testament Israelite and you read that phrase, it would send chills down your spine. You say, why? I almost never do this in a sermon, so if I do it, it's important. Keep a finger here in Daniel 1 and go back to, with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. You have to see this for yourself. 2 Kings chapter 20, keep a finger in Daniel 1. 2 Kings 20, all you really need to know is that this is about a hundred years before Daniel. It says in 2 Kings 20 verse 12, At that time, Baradoc Baladin, a son of Baladin, which sounds like a guy from the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? With Balin and Dwalin. <laughs> Baradoc Baladin, the son of Baladin. Okay. Anyhow, um, it, it, notice who he is. He's the king of Babylon, and he sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. If you know the story, Hezekiah's been sick, and God miraculously healed him. So verse 13, Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house. And he goes on to say, here's my gold, here's my silver, here's my armory, here's my security guard, here's the combination of my vault. I mean, he shows these guys everything that he has. So verse 14, Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said, what do these men say? And where do they come from? And Hezekiah said, oh, they came from a far country, from Babylon, to talk to little old me. Can you believe that, Isaiah? I'm famous. People know me. I've got a following. And he said, well, what have they seen in your house? Verse 15. So Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing among my treasuries that I've not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, verse 16, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away. And notice this. They will become officials or servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
A hundred years, Isaiah predicted, this is what is coming. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm getting at this. What's happening in these opening verses, these first five verses, listen, it is not just Nebuchadnezzar's cruelty at work. It is God's sovereignty at work. Notice back in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, I can prove it to you. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's the first time God shows up. And what is he doing? He's literally giving Judah over to Babylon. He's giving them to the exile. Behind the history, Daniel says there's theology. Behind every hand is the guiding hand of God. And so what appears in these first five verses to be just all this Babylonian sort of nonsense, this Babylonian boot camp, this Babylonian brainwashing, what actually appears to be the growth of Babylon is actually the wrath of God. God had told his people, you are to be faithful to me, and if you are not, you will go into exile. And we see here, number one, what does God give? God gives judgment to those who forsake him. He gives judgment. That's what's happening in these first five verses. The attack, the siege, the kidnapping, all of this could have been avoided if Israel had remained faithful to God, but they hadn't. They had grown up with it. It was theirs. They had honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. For generation after generation, For a long time, the prophets would preach and they wouldn't listen and they would say, well, we want to be like the nations. We want to be like the nations. Hezekiah, we want to be like the nations. And in 605 BC, God said, fine. Go to the nations. See how that works out for you. And he gave them what they wanted. Reminds me of Romans 1. We know that God exists, but we suppress the truth and unrighteousness and don't honor him as God. And those that know him, but they turn their back on him, he says what? God hands you over. My friends, this is a reminder to us, we as Christians, we love to tell each other and remind each other that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. That's true. Listen, he not only keeps the great promises, he also keeps the grave ones. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, one of those promises he has made is that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. That's not a 70-year exile. That is an eternal exile, separation from God for all eternity. And our only hope, as as Daniel's going to show us in the coming chapters, is that God would send his son to be the Messiah. As John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Christ came to take the judgment upon himself that belongs to us. And verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe in him is judged already. So my friends, you may think to yourself, you know, I'm, I kind of grew up in this stuff, and I, you know, my parents love God, and my dad loves God, and my mom loves God. I've been to Christian school and Sunday school, and you know, it's, I, I can do this stuff, and 
I've kind of been, you know, I can go through the, the motions and go through the things, and I can honor God with my lips. I can name the books of the Bible. I can do all this. But you know, honestly, I don't really care. When I turn 18, 21, my parents aren't paying for school. I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with this. What, what, my friends, Hebrews chapter 10 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What remains is the terrifying expectation of judgment. Those who know God but don't honor Him as God and turn their back on Him, He says that's what you can expect, that's what He gives it may not be what we desire, but it's what a holy and righteous God shows that it's what we need. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us of why Christ came to absorb the wrath of God, to extinguish the judgment that we might be found right in Him. Israel learned a hard lesson that day. And I pray no one here has to learn this lesson the same way. Just when you think exile can't get worse, it does. Verse 6 says, Now among them were the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The story, which is kind of an international story, right? all these nations, zooms in on four young men. And the story, now the camera fixes on them for the rest of the book, these four men. Notice they are sons of Judah, which means they're somewhere in the family tree of Jesus. But not only that, verse 7 says that they had, uh, that the commander of the officials, he assigned new names to them. So here's how Babylonian boot camp works. Separation, isolation, indoctrination, and then re-identification. We're going we're gonna to strip everything away and we're going to remove your identity. I know a thing or two about changing names like this. Two of our sons, when they joined our family, we changed their names. And it was a very intentional effort in our adoption process to send the signal to them, you are part of us. This is your family. Well, that's essentially what Babylon is doing. You're, you're no longer part of Yahweh's group. You're now part of Nebuchadnezzar's group. And they're trying to bring them to this point. Then verse 8 it was really is the crux of this story. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Oh man, is it a let? Good gracious. Okay, so there's so much in this verse here I want to talk about. All right, so watch this. First of all, did you see first of all, did you see first of all what, what happened in the naming here? I love it. It's so subtle, but it's so good. It says, it says, Daniel was named Belteshazzar. But Daniel, as in, it didn't stick. Babylon tried as hard as they could, but he walked out of there still known as Daniel. And the rest of the book, guess what they call him? Daniel, 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 Daniel. This is who he is. And not only that, even better, the verb in verse 8 is the same as is repeated in verse 7. So really what verse 7 says is something like this. Um, the, the official determined to name them this. And verse 8 says, but Daniel determined to not defile himself. They said, we're going to make you Babylonian. Daniel said, I don't think so. 
I, I will not defile myself. Daniel responds with courage. We don't know exactly why he wouldn't defile himself. There's a lot of issues here. Some say it's kosher laws, but wine was not forbidden from Old Testament laws, so that that may or may not be it. Others say meat sacrificed to idols. That's possible, but even vegetables would have been sacrificed to idols. I tend to think it may have been something more like this. Imagine, imagine going on a tour, like a vacation for the summer and do a tour of Europe, right? You go all over Europe and you don't even really think about it and you wake up uh, on, uh, in London, England on July 4th. And you go down to the pub and you order something to eat and they want to give you bangers and mash and Yorkshire pudding. And you're going... It's July 4th. I want a hot dog. I want potato salad, you know? I want fireworks, right? It doesn't seem right to eat the queen's food on Uncle Sam's day. Right? There's, that, there's, there's, that's not your loyalty, right? My loyalty's here. It's not over here. In the Old Testament, to eat food was not just like to have a meal. It usually was an endorsement. It was one of fellowship. It was one of showing like approval and that we're totally on the same page. And it may be that that's Daniel's response. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't mind being educated in Babylon, but he's refusing to participate in the full program of Babylon. He drew the line somewhere and, and, and showed that it's one thing to be in Babylon. It's one thing to learn in Babylon. It's another thing to lose yourself in Babylon. They wanted Daniel to say, Nebuchadnezzar is my shepherd. I shall not want. And Daniel knew better. So it says in verse 8, he sought permission from the commander. Notice Daniel's not rude. He's not argumentative. He didn't start a strike and unionize all the exiles, you know, to big some hullabaloo. No, what does he do? He appeals to the powers that be. He goes to the pagan guy in charge and says, hey, do you mind? Can we work something out here? And that guy in verse 10 says, I am afraid of my Lord the King. In other words, he actually, if you read it closely, he doesn't ever say no to Daniel. He just says, hey man, I might get in trouble. And honestly, I like my head, especially attached to my body. And I want to keep it that way, okay? And so he says to him, like, I, you know, I, I wish I could help you out, but I, there's nothing that I can do because I'm, I'm just going to land me in hot water. So Daniel, notice verse 11, he actually goes to the next guy in charge. I never noticed that. I always thought it was the same guy. He goes to the next guy on the totem pole, you know, the, the next guy on the food chain. He goes down here and he says, hey, would you mind testing us? And so the man agrees to do that. By the way, I love Daniel's wisdom here and his nuance here. Daniel doesn't just see the problem. He proposes a solution. He's as wise as a serpent and yet as gentle as a dove. He doesn't try to blow up the system. He actually tries to work inside the system and see if they can come to some agreement. You all know the outcome of the story. We've already read it. It's no surprise. They set up a 10-day test period. They go through it, skip down to verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who'd been eating the king's choice food. I mentioned before that this is a miracle to get fat eating vegetables. That's pretty amazing here. But I will point out that these details here about the food and the vegetables and the water, this does not exist to give you a diet. It exists. It exists to give you courage. 
It exists to give you faith. It exists to give you inspiration of what it means to stand up for God in what may be like a tough situation. In the opening scene, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar was doing all this stuff, but Daniel says, no, no, actually God was the one doing this. In this scene, it looks like, man, Daniel's doing all this stuff, but look at verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the officials. You see that? This isn't Daniel's doing, this is ultimately God's doing. God gave him this. And so we see number two, that God not only gives judgment to those that forsake him, he also gives grace to those that fear him. He gives grace to those that fear him. This is really an incredible moment in the story because if you step back for a second, think about what's happened here. Daniel has lost, right? I mean, just count it up. He lost his king. He lost his religion. He lost his country. He lost his family. He lost his culture. He lost his identification. He lost his name. Daniel has lost everything except the fear of God. You can be in Babylon and have everything taken away. But if you have the fear of God, you have exactly what you need. Daniel says that he will not compromise. Ashpenaz says, I fear the king. Daniel basically rebuttals, but I fear the king of kings. And he was committed by grace to him. Other thing I, wrote, I was looking at this story and I wrote this. I wrote this down in my notes. I wrote, do I have enough faith to obey God even after he spanks me? Isn't that crazy? Why is he in exile? God did it. God put him there. There's a sense in which if God, for whatever reason, takes everything away from you and he removes it all, that is not less reason to fear God. That is more reason to fear God. And Daniel doubles down saying, I, I will not do this like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And Daniel, by grace, fears and trusts God. He does it in this humble, respectful way so that he might stand out. Oftentimes, as God, it's difficult to be godly people in an ungodly world. It's easy to drift into the ditch this way or that way. There's a lot of labels for this. I love Alistair Begg's very simple. It's, it's on the one end, there's absorption with the world or there is withdrawal from the world. Some say, well, you know, if the world's, we just need to drive into this ditch and just be like the world in everything and in every way. But what did Jesus say? If the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? On the other end, the idea that, hey, we're just going to pull away into our own little Christian communes and we're never going to rub shoulders with lost people. We're never going to interact with them or try to talk to them or be reasonable with them. We're just going to pull away completely. 1 Corinthians 5 says, I didn't, Paul said, I didn't tell you to not associate with immoral people of this world because otherwise you'd have to go to Mars. Go read it. It's what he says. You would have to leave this world. How else is the world going to know the grace of Christ? if we withdraw completely. Daniel shows us another way to be in the world, but not of the world. He found a way to cooperate with the Babylonians without compromising with the Babylonians. And Daniel shows us that sometimes we have to say yes to some things, but there are times when we must say no to other things. 
And by God's grace, he was able to, to know when to do that. I went to, I went to public school through seventh grade. And in, in elementary school, third or fourth grade, I forget. I don't even know why this was. But for some reason, our school had this, this program. And our, our guidance counselor came into classes uh, uh, once a week or something like that. And did these, for lack of a better term, these like 20-minute New Age spiritualism sessions in class. And I came home the first day, my parents said, what'd you learn today? And I was like, oh, you know, math and reading and channeling the spirits of the dead. And they were like, what? And I was like, I don't know, yeah, I'm fourth grade, like, here's the papers, you know. And my parents read it and were like, mm, yeah, that's, that's not right. So, you know, you can imagine in Alabama, some were people ready to burn the school down. You know, it was just like, you know, I mean, this was, and my parents, what did they do? They went to the principal and they said, hey, look, like, we understand this is the program, it's what they're teaching, yeah, that's what it is, and they said, hey, listen, like, here's kind of one of two options, either you can, this doesn't line up with our faith, we either ask that you take our son out of that part of the program, if he needs to do other work, he can, if that's part of it, but we ask that he gets taken out of it, or we're going to show up and take him out of it, and the principal said, fine, we don't mind, we can, we can pull him out, and so that's what they did, I didn't quite fully understand it, third or fourth grade. I was like, all right, I'll just get to go do this other thing. So I, I left classes. And like a week or two later, a, a teacher came to me and they said, I see you got pulled out of that program. And I said, yeah. And they said, I said, your parents? And I said, yeah, yeah. They, we talked about it. You know, we're Christians and so forth. And my teacher looked at me and said, praise God for your mom and dad. Because they did it in a way that was respectful. It wasn't rude. But they did it in a way that that act out of courage and conviction. Now here's what's crazy, they didn't do that with everything. I sat through science classes where they taught evolution. I sat through history classes where they taught the infallibility of the enlightenment, you know, practically. I, I sat through all those things, but you know it was a, 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 a bridge too far? Participating in New Age spiritualism. Education's one thing, learning, but the moment that we're asked to participate, Daniel says, I can't do that. I can't be part of that. And Daniel finds a way to, to maintain his witness, his identity. Is this tricky? Is this hard sometimes? Yeah. But brothers and sisters, do we, do we like Daniel, do we have symbols of resistance to the prevailing culture? It could be any number of things. Maybe it's bowing your head to give thanks and pray at the Olive Garden or Outback. Just to say... This food is it's from God. Maybe it's refusing to wear the gender-inclusive button your manager says everybody has to wear now. Just to, to be part of this program. Maybe that's the thing. Say, I just, I'll do something else. I can't do that. Do, do we have symbols of resistance that show we can be in the world and we'll work hard and we'll be good, and, but we're not going to be of the world? Daniel found that balancing line, that, that, that balancing act, and shows us what to do. Is this easy? It's not always easy. Is it clear? It's not always clear. But the same God who gave Daniel over to exile gave Daniel favor in exile. And he can do it for you. When you act out of courage and faith and fear him, Daniel would ask us the question, I understand you don't want to lose your job. I understand you don't want to make waves, but who do you fear more, your manager, your boss, or your God? 
And there comes a time, like Daniel, to fear him more. There's a final scene, and I'll just summarize it briefly. The, the last scene here, Daniel and his friends have gone to school, taken all their classes, and now it's time for their comprehensive exams. Verse 18 says they were presented, and verse 19, notice it says, the king talked with them. Imagine that. Your final exam is an oral exam with King Nebuchadnezzar. Boy, talk about intimidating. And what does it say there in verse 19? That of all the people that he talked to, out of them all, not one was found like Daniel and his friends. Do you know how hard it is to impress Nebuchadnezzar? But Daniel and his friends did. And how is this possible? Or, or, or notice verse 20, even more. It says, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted him, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. They, they were not only, right, they graduated from the University of Babylon and they were co-valedictorians and they were not only brighter than all their fellow students, they were brighter than all the professors. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this. He sees this and thinks, what on earth? Who are these young men? How was this possible? Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even stood, understood all kinds of visions and dreams. This was not a natural ability. This was a supernatural ability. And the fact that Daniel understands visions and dreams is, is both a hint forwards at what's going to happen in the story later, but it's also a hint backwards. Do you remember somebody else in a foreign land who could understand visions and dreams? Remember Joseph? And Joseph doesn't give him that ability so Joseph could live a comfy plushy life he was given that ability so that he might rise in the ranks and what and actually preserve the nation of israel from extermination and starvation god put him there to see to it that his redemptive plan would continue to unfold so what do we see here number three what does god give god also gives a witness to those who don't know him he gives a witness to those that don't know him. If I can use the language of Augustine, <laughs> the city of man has been secretly invaded by the city of God, and the city of man financed the whole thing. <laughs> right? Think about it. How did the chapter open? It chapters opens with Nebuchadnezzar with his chest sticking out and his arms at his side and he's standing on the land of Shinar with all these vessels saying, wow, look at this Yahweh character everybody's been talking about. Clearly, I am stronger and smarter than he is. And you get to the end of the chapter and God goes, you think so? You, you really think you've outsmarted me? And God has come in the back door. And he's put Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Misha, right next to Nebuchadnezzar. And if you don't think this is important, just wait till the next couple of chapters. It's going to be really important. But my friends, God will do whatever it takes to make himself known among the nations. 
And he will do whatever it takes to extend and preserve his redemptive work throughout the whole world, even putting us in tough situations. Think about the story earlier that, that we shared with Katie Cummings. Her mother passes away. She goes on this trip thinking, I'm there for teenagers. And lo and behold, what? God has her at the right time, at the right place to be a witness to this lady who was sitting in church this morning. Because God gives a witness. And brothers and sisters, we are to be that witness. I know it's tempting to pray, and maybe you should. Maybe you should pray, God, give me a new job. But maybe first it should say, God, make me a witness at this job. Show me how it is that I can, with wisdom and prudence, respect my boss, but ultimately fear, fear God. Think about the book of Acts. You know, the apostles are doing their thing. What, is, what are the, the, the Jewish leaders say? Man, we've got to imprison these guys and beat these guys, and we've got to run these guys out of town. And that's what they do. And God says, okay, thank you. Because I told them to go be my witnesses. And now they're in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I don't know the mind of God in this. But I can almost imagine right now in Afghanistan, the Taliban, with their chest stuck out gloating that, hey, we've taken over and we've done all this. And in the process, hey, we're going to persecute pastors and we're going to run off churches and we're going to ultimately kill, kill Christians. And I can just imagine God in heaven saying, okay but you do know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God will get his glory to the nations. He's going to do it. And sometimes he'll put us in tough, hard situations to do that, but but that's what he's called us to do. Be faithful even in a foreign land. God may have you in your job, in your dorm, in your community, in your family for a bigger purpose than your own comfort. He may have you at Centra or BWX or even at Liberty University to make you a missionary to people that would not know him otherwise. By the way, verse 21, and Daniel continued into the first year of Cyrus the king. That's not a random time stamp. You know what that means? That means that Daniel outlasted Babylon. Seventy years. And during that, Nebuchadnezzar's buried, and Daniel's just still doing his job. He was a witness to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Osiris, and he was the man they called upon. Tell us what God is doing. Daniel says, I'll do my job faithful. Does it mean he liked everything Babylon did? I'm sure it didn't. But he was a faithful witness, and that's what God will give. He won't always make us comfortable but he will use us to be his witness to the nations. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, God is up to something way bigger, way bigger than what most of us expect. And our prayers oftentimes are way too small. Make me comfortable, make me healthy, make everything go right. My friends, God is calling us to be his witness, even in exile. And guess what? He can give us the grace. He can give us the favor. He can, what what men intended for evil, God can turn around for good. You know why? Because God is in control. Let's trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. 
And Lord, we thank you for the challenge of Daniel 1 that calls us to reevaluate how you work in our world. We thank you for this reminder that you are a generous God. And while you don't give us always what we expect, you're giving us, Lord, what we need and putting us in situations around people, divine appointments, by which we can, by grace, fear and witness for you. Lord, help us. Every one of us has had that Daniel moment, and some of us have buckled under the pressure. We didn't stand up. God, forgive us. And Lord, give us the courage and the faith and the boldness to do it next time. And give us that opportunity. Oh, Lord, we pray. May we do it with respect. May we do it with, with kindness, but with resolve and commitment that we fear you. Help us, oh, Lord, we pray towards this end, that your name might be great in all the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.